All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good night, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to our series on COVID-19 sustainability and the future of business. I'm now joined by Dr. David Hardesty, a professor at Sauter School of Business and expert in consumer behavior and sustainability. And we're here to talk about how COVID-19 is changing the behavior of, of, of people. And so thank you, David, for joining us. And I want to jump right into this. Uh, my, my first question to you is, look, are, are people consuming more right now in the middle of this crisis? Less? Are they consuming differently? And uh, what kind of evidence are you seeing in the research around that? Thanks, Justin. I'm uh, excited to be here and chat with you. And right now, because everybody's shut inside, I think for the most part, people are just consuming less, right? They're obviously not going out to restaurants or traveling, and uh, but they're quickly also changing how they buy. And then the real question is, what's going to happen later once things open up again, right? Because uh, these days, people are buying more and more online. And I think uh, at first, people were just sticking with the status quo. And now they're developing, they're, they're buying, hey, I need glasses wipers just this morning, right? I was like, oh, I need to clean my glasses. They're dirty. And uh, it was so fast just to jump on Amazon, click it. Now I've got a $10 item arriving in the mail that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have bought that. <laughs> pre-COVID. So, so there's almost like this ease of consumption that could increase consumption levels of, of certainly like certain consumer goods or yeah. household goods or con- things of convenience, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an ancient truism that the easier you make something, the more people will do it, especially with, with buying, right? And so that's why Amazon pan- patented one-click buy. And now that everybody's getting in the habit of buying online, it just removes all those barriers. You're not, you don't have to walk down the street to the store or drive in your car, right? It's just, and you're already on your computer all the time these days. And so mm-hmm. now there's just no barriers to like, you have the thought to buy something and it's done, right? You don't, maybe don't even take a, a second, second to consider whether you really need it or not. Um, and so that's something that I think overall will lead to more buying of things in general, even though, of course, people are going to have less money. So that's going to have a big downward pressure. But if you look at what people do with the money they do have, and once the economy recovers, uh, I mean, there maybe there are some bright spots as well. Um, I mean, that's a bright spot for business, I suppose. But then in terms of the world, right, I tend to think we're consuming too much overall all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's, so I get really concerned when I think about people just buying effortlessly all the time, right? That's a huge problem for the world. But hopefully, there are other shifts that will go in the right direction. Obviously, people traveling less, happy to work from home, maybe more virtual conferences, we don't always have to fly everybody all around the world. Uh, there's, I mean, even in sustainability. So I, I'm working with some, uh, some, clothing companies on sustainability. And before COVID, there was a big pressure for us to all meet in person for really no good reason, just that there's a value on face-to-face. And so it was a a company in Europe and the idea was, oh, we're all going to fly in there for a two-day meeting to work Mm -hmm. on this sustainability initiative. And I was like, you know, that gave me a little like, "Uh, do we really need to do that? But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I love face-to-face has a lot of value, but I don't think that it's worth flying everybody all around the world. Right. Not to mention our own sanity and jet lag and all that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I, I remember being invited to like talks to go to go to the UK for a day to give a lecture on uh-huh. sustainability. Yeah. And I was like, oh, boy, yeah, yeah. this better be one damn good lecture if it's going to offset the uh, the impact of of me flying to London and back just for a two hour speech. So, yeah, and uh, I think it's know. doubly bad because it's both. Of course, it's bad to do the flying, but then it's also the messages sends to everyone. Right. Yeah. Like there was. 
I mean, all going back to Al Gore, right? Flying around talking about cutting climate change emissions, yeah, yeah. and uh, there's a lot of accusations of hypocrisy, right? And I'm, I mean, I'm somebody that say, hey, you know, it's important to get the message out there. Sometimes you do have to fly, but you know, people people pay attention to that kind of thing, right? And I feel mm. like you got to practice what you preach, or people won't necessarily follow through. Um, there's a a study that illustrates this on solar panels. So, how you know, trying to get people in your neighborhood to sign up and put solar panels on their roof. And if you are somebody that's an ambassador for solar, but you don't have it yourself, it's not effective, right? Whereas if you're trying to get people to sign up for a solar and you do have the own panels on your roof, then it's like 60% more people will sign up. Right. You'll be you'll be like so much more effective because they can see, oh, this person's doing it. They must believe in it. They think it's a good idea. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you got to you got to walk the walk. Well, I, I mean, I think you've just also made a fantastic uh, point as to we can take to our respective wives and say, let us buy Teslas, please, since we're sustainability professors. Right. <laughs> and we need to walk. I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So setting like COVID aside, what were some of the like, how would you approach this idea of sustainable consumption? Because it's almost like a oxymoron, like an oxymoron. So what is sustainable? Like, so if you were to equip us with like a like a general framework for thinking about what is more sustainable consumption, how do consumers like reward brands uh, that they think are more sustainable? sustainable or more ethical or doing the right thing? Like, how do you, how do we kind of like approach our thinking there? What kind of behaviors or cues or, or data are we looking for? Uh, I mean, one thing is, are people moving in the right direction, right? Are they rewarding companies that are taking steps? So you can see, for example, companies that have a better, better record on sustainability, they're improving their emissions, they're deep decreasing their uh, waste are consumers choosing those brands that have good records, right? So are they shifting? That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it from a, you know, purely environmental perspective is just reducing consumption of new stuff, right? So reusing stuff, sharing, um, repairing, right? And also the move to to experiences to digital consumption rather than physical consumption is great, right? So mm. overall, just buying less new stuff. And, and if you are buying new stuff, okay, who, who, who are you buying it from? And are, are people willing to maybe pay a premium for something that is better for the environment, better for workers? That's something that we've seen that a lot of people say they will do. A majority of the people say that they'll buy uh, more sustainable products. But when you actually measure who's going to pay more, there's a chunk that do. There's a big segment, you know, maybe 20 percent, roughly. That's just a total spitball number uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, North, North American economies will pay a premium for ethically sourced products, but uh, that's that's much less than the 60% that say they would pay more mm. for a better product, right? So there's there definitely is a market for you know, sustainable, conscientious uh, production, but um, we, need, we still need to figure out how to narrow that gap, right? We call it the intention action gap. The intention so. action between that, I won't quote your numbers, but like 60 yeah. or 20, like yeah. as rough averages yeah. in that intention action gap. So what are they, what are they doing? Like those who are actually taking action, what kind of things are they like? What is it to buy a 
more ethical or conscientious or sustainable thing? Are they just like, is it a marketing thing? Like it says it's green and natural and organic on the label, so it must be. Or is there certification schemes in place? Or are there, are there like, do we think that these 20% actually like do a deep dive and really research into the clothing brand? Like what, no. what, what actually triggers that action? Yeah, <laughs> I think for the most part, it's based on feelings. Um, but the, and those, yeah, those are partly due to marketing, but they do also in a weird way, come from having some amount of rigor behind them, right? Mm. Because there are essentially, there's a few like super consumers and these can be like journalists, uh, activists, right? There's a few people that will do those deep dives. And if a company is making false claims, right? Or, or really bad greenwashing, they'll get called out, right? Mm. Uh, and so companies still have to be careful to not greenwash and to back it up. And those who do have a track record and who are maybe, um, you know, have it even written into their their corporate contract, right, of they're going to be doing for the world some of these benefit corporations like Patagonia, right? And there's a lot of other examples where uh, that shows a commitment over time that convinces the right people. And that kind of spreads through social contagion that other consumers, eventually they just have a good feeling about Patagonia, right? They don't know exactly what Patagonia is doing. They don't know any of the certifications, but they do know, Hey, Patagonia has this track. They, they have a good feeling about them. That's a good company. So I'm going to support them and buy from them rather than some fast mm. fashion brand. Right. So the average consumer does not know any, <laughs> any of the details, but that doesn't mean the details don't matter. Right. They do, they do get there eventually. Right. Cause like the thought leadership of a, a few of those super consumers yeah. creates that social contagion. And mm-hmm. so if, if, if your brand doesn't pass, you know, sort of their diligence, yep. you're not, you're not going to benefit from that contagion effect. And indeed you're probably going to get called out yeah, exactly. sooner rather than later. So yeah. I'm curious, uh, just from, I know this is, I'm putting you on the spot here, but have you seen any kind of like social contagion or evidence of social contagion around different kinds of behavior in the midst of COVID? Do you think like I, one of the things I've observed in sort of my family network is everyone's like, oh, we better buy from that local restaurant that we know is struggling a lot right now because we want to see them open on the other side of this. Or like we mm. want to spend more of our, you know, dollars locally. My, I was buying some wine for my mother-in-law and she was like, could you make sure to buy from BC based wineries? Because I want to make sure that, you know, I'm keeping my cash inside a local economy. And so here's this interesting like kind of social contagion where everyone's feeling there's a sense of unity that crisis creates mm-hmm. and people trying to pour their money into local economies. And I'm wondering if you've seen any kind of evidence of that in your world or if anyone in the academic world is talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I, there's been a couple of websites launched just here in Vancouver showcasing what are local restaurants that are open and delivering specifically mm. for the reason you're saying that we sh- should be supporting them, keeping them open. Uh, I think it's interesting that there is this move to local autonomy and it's it's about supporting the people that are nearby us. And, and, and also, uh, you know, we don't there's less trust in the global markets. Right. That's something that. You know, the world mm-hmm. has just been globalizing, globalizing, globalizing. And now suddenly we have this step back to local. We're like, wait a second, maybe we don't want to entirely rely on supply chains from all over the world, right? Um, so, I th- And I think that's something that will stick a bit too, right? There will be an ongoing, that's another new trend, right? Is a, a more of a return to local, right? Not <laughs> just the environmentalists saying local, but community people interested in community and security, right? Mm. Independence, maybe the some of those crazy preppers 
seems slightly <laughs> less crazy now, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. But there's an interesting thing because I was talking about this uh, with with Werner Antwiller, and he was mm-hmm. talking about we talk about resiliency or redundancy in supply chains, and that's mm-hmm. like an economist's way of thinking about this, where it's like, okay, economies of scale function extremely beautifully at lar- in global supply chains, and now we're seeing this big pushback to local economies, and mm-hmm. it's it's all well and good when it's like food and liquor and, and stuff where there are like limits to the economies of scale of a restaurant, mm-hmm. right? Especially if you care about the quality of the food you're eating or the quality of the wine you're drinking, whatever it might be. But I think where it'll get really interesting is, so, okay, now are people going to buy a different car? Mm-hmm. Are they going to buy a more expensive pair of jeans? Are they going to like preference like refurbished clothing that comes from a local brand? Are they going to think differently about the, you know, I, I wonder if this is going to be like kind of this, shallow expression of localization because where mm-hmm. it's convenient and easy and right. but, or, or will people actually demonstrate any kind of additional willingness to pay for some of these more uh, technically complex products that are harder to produce locally I mean mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's no like data on that yet but it's a it's a it's a it's a tough question so and I think a key is it needs for it to really take root it needs to be visible mm. that what you're doing is coming locally right that it becomes a symbol to others so that if you're just wearing you know jeans are something for the most part they just look like jeans uh Mm. you'd have to look pretty closely to see the brand and then you still might not know where it actually came from right Right. and so i think anything that's going to really take off it needs to (laughs) needs to have that symbol (laughs) locally made and i think that so i think a few enterprising businesses will manage to do that right um but most for the most part i think people will will stick with what's easy like you're saying right you're not you're buying your your camera your your new slr camera you're probably not looking for a you know canadian made if you're (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't think that's i don't think that's an option at the moment and uh boy would it be interesting if yeah so what what kind of behaviors in sustainable consumption were we seeing pre-covid like what were the like the great signals we talk about action and tension Mm -hmm. uh like so what was what were the behaviors that we're seeing i I suspect that 2019 was probably almost like a high watermark for the sustainability movement Mm -hmm. because the economy was doing great and the thing getting all of our attention was climate yeah and so people's willingness to pay and perhaps that action intention gap like you know was shrinking or we saw what it looked like to to narrow that gap to your point Mm -hmm. now People are about to enter an economic downturn. They're going to become much more price sensitive. Yep. Uh, they're going to have seen their businesses, their careers, their business models come under attack. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, one, what were these behaviors that we were trying to reward, like whether it's buying locally or buying more ethically consciously? Mm-hmm. And like, which one of those do you think have any chance of being sticky, like actually making it through this this economic transition because sustainable consumption in a, in a depression and I'm not calling this a depression, but in potentially like a sustained economic contraction yeah. is probably not something we've ever been able to research before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, the things that make sense in an economic downturn are the, the parts of sustainability around kind of efficiency and quality, right. Mm. Um, that maybe you're not, instead of buying something that, you have to pay a lot more for because it was produced in a in a more sustainable way. People may might still be willing to pay something 
more for something that is more durable mm-hmm. or to pay, they may be willing to pay less for something that's refurbished, right? Re- reusing instead of buying new. So mm-hmm. just in general, being more careful with the resources that people have can dovetail nicely with sustainability, right? And, and I think that thinking about sustainability in terms of long-term investment and taking care, taking care with the resources we have, right? I think that's something that can mm-hmm. work. And so if you have companies that are, that are offering, hey, you know, refurbished is something that wasn't cool, right? In the pre-COVID times, yeah, people were willing to pay more for sustainability, but do you want to get this secondhand thing? Uh, I don't know. I guess I'd rather maybe rather just get Mm. new. But maybe now with the economic pressure and people do want to do the right thing and be sustainable at the same time, uh, I think that could be the, this could be the perfect moment for refurbished, uh, for for used, for uh, secondhand, to, to really come into the mainstream and be have some social value because you're being smart with what you have and good for the world, right? Hmm. Um, so like these these values don't have to be seen as incompatible with each other. You could be thrifty and sustainable. Oh, yeah. They can actually respond go to code quite well. Yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> well, I'm always reminded. So I'm always reminded of my grandma. So my grandma's 93. She's still still alive, lives in Vancouver. Uh, grew up here in Vancouver through, through, the, through the Depression. And she grew up with like seven other kids in a house, like a two bedroom house in East Van. And uh, they grew up poor, mm-hmm. right? They're a first generation immigrant family. And so now, even though she's retired and wealthy and in the nice seniors home and whatever, she still like remembers that when she was growing up, you got meat once a week. You got a Sunday roast and the leftovers from that Sunday roast made the soup on the Monday and that soup lasted you for three more days and then you ate whatever you could for like between like Thursday, Friday, Saturday back into your Sunday roast. Mm -hmm. And this mentality of this sort of scarcity based mentality of saying like we better be thrifty, we better be smart, just never left her. didn't matter how much prosperity she benefited from. And Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of that as you're talking about if we're about to enter a period where a lot of people feel in, uh, insecure in their uh, economic opportunity and simultaneously acutely aware of the sustainability of what they're trying to do, this whole new breed of a consumer might emerge. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I have a similar story actually from my grandpa who uh, being out pounding nails with him and, you know, you mispound a nail and it gets crooked. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know you have like a, a bag of nails there, but he, instead of throwing away the crooked nail, he'd pound it back straight so that you could use it, right? It could be a perfectly good nail. <laughs> exactly, yeah, so. yeah. And so maybe, it's, so there's this fascinating tension between the first phenomenon, which you were describing, which is consumption has gotten so much more convenient. Mm-hmm. And this second phenomenon, which is like, is, are we about to enter into a period of spendthriftness and like mm-hmm. in what kind of business models and, and marketing opportunities and like what new stories are brands going to tell the people? Like I, I'm reminded of Patagonia, which is like, don't buy this jacket or... opening up repair workshops or selling refurbished versions of their clothing. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, that suddenly looks like a lot smarter and actually really resonates with people's values right now. So let's go get a used Patagonia jacket from Patagonia, Mm -hmm. right? Or I'll go get a used refurbished MacBook or refurbished smartphone, right? So not good for our pre-COVID definition of a constantly growing, constantly expanding economy, Mm -hmm. like where every manager and every board is expected to have some plan to grow their company by 5% next year, Uh where it's like, well, what if consumers just don't want to spend 5% more next year? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll tell you a study that I did recently. um, We were working with a a company who I'll keep anonymous for now on sustainability messaging, sending Mm -hmm. out emails and measuring actual purchase rates. 
And there was a message that worked well overall, but it was very polarized and that for some people it worked extremely well and some people it actually backfired. Mm -hmm. And that message was doing good shouldn't cost too much. Right. Mm -hmm. And for, and what we found was that for lower SES consumers, those that were struggling to get a bit, struggling to get by or just, you know, kind of lower mid, middle class, they were even before COVID were struggling a bit with, okay, I don't have a lot of money, but I want to do the right thing. And so getting this message of, oh, should, doing good shouldn't cost too much. They're like, yes, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting thing is for the really high SES consumers, this message actually backfired. It made them less likely to buy something when you said it shouldn't cost too much. Because for them, they're almost thinking like, well, shouldn't I have to pay for sustainability? Oh. I don't want to maybe cheapen it by by bringing money into it. I should be just being virtuous because uh, that's I'm a good person, not because I'm saving money. And so for yeah, actually, the cost saving was a detriment for the for those people. But maybe now, you know, things will shift and that message will resonate more with everyone, right? Hopefully in the, in the post COVID days. <laughs> but I guess that that lends like that tells a brand that depending on like the, the, the product you're selling, if you're targeting this market, you better position it this way. And you're targeting like Walmart, yeah. for example, does lots around sustainability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one would ever think it. No one likes to. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of these. It's only in like the corporate world and in the academic world that we yep. think get excited <laughs> about Walmart and sustainability. And to everyone else, they're like big box behemoths of right. like you know cheap consumption. But mm -hmm. to me, it's like that's a company that does more to manage their supply chain and the sustainability of it than like almost any brand I can think of. Yeah, but, you talk uh, about efficient use of resources. Yeah, that's Walmart. Yeah, yeah. But then on the other hand, these these high SES, I guess that's socioeconomic status. Yeah, uh -huh. I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah, these high SES people are almost using sustainability as a form of luxury consumption. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, if you make my if you make my fancy organic T-shirt cheap, uh, well, must not be all that sustainable, right? <laughs> right. It would be like if you told them, hey, you know, Louis Vuitton shouldn't cost that much. Well, then it's not Louis Vuitton anymore, right? You've that's, lost this, That's the way some people. You've are lost the about. sheen. Yeah. You've <laughs> lost the sheen. So that's it. so. Have in the midst of all this crazy uh, transition, have you thought about or imagined, hey, like I should be trying to like research this like there's this probably some fascinating behaviors out there like this is like a once in a generation opportunity to like evaluate how consumers respond to extreme shock has anything occurred to you or you hear a lot of conversations sort of in the in the in the academic world of what might be done uh i mean one thing that i'm just interested in more generally is how people think about the future and mm. trade-offs are they more focused on when they're facing scarcity are they more focused on kind of what's right in front of them or will they be more will that future uncertainty actually make people more long-term and cautious right and so we can come sometimes we measure these with these super basic questions like hey would you rather have a hundred dollars today or a hundred twenty dollars next month right mm -hmm. asking mm -hmm. these kind of we call them intertemporal choice questions, right? And so we want to give, give people the same questions. It's tricky to study, though, because on the one hand, it's an exciting natural experiment because things are changing so much. But at the, at the same time, there's so much changing, it's hard to pinpoint. And, you know, we as academics like to try to narrow down, okay, exactly what's driving it, right? And you can't randomly assign half the people to COVID and half not. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some interesting uh, things. You get uh, second waves coming and quarantine yeah. in some places, not others. You could try well, to manage it. But, so we like compare uh, New Zealand into the United States and see like changes yeah. in consumer behavior in places now. Yeah, you can see like when people, yeah. places are going through fa the phases at different points. Yeah, I think there will be some interesting stuff to to come out of this. Yeah, there, there's no way there's no way there's not. But it's, it's an interesting point. There's there's so much 
correlation right now yeah, exactly. that causation is going to be extremely difficult to isolate mm-hmm. right so are brands like in your world are brands worried i mean obviously we're all worried that there's an economic downturn but are brands who are specifically focused on sustainability and or consumers motivated by sustainability are they a little anxious right now thinking like hey our core value proposition the thing that resonated with consumers is about to go out the window as they become extremely price conscious or do you think that they've are well positioned to kind of ride this out and maybe actually take advantage of it I mean, overall in business, just everybody's freaking out, right? Just because <laughs> the economy and spending is down. But from what I've seen in the company, you know, the companies that I've I've been interacting with that are on sustainability, the feeling is it's a crisis right now, but it's a short term crisis. The thinking is that people that cons- if anything, this is and the limited survey research that I've seen on this is that consumers, if anything, care more, at least say they care more about uh, doing the right thing about sustainability or, and, and more, moreover, just being socially conscious consumers. So the, the companies that I've and, and organizations that I've been interacting with, been, hey, is an emergency, we got to get through this, but we're well positioned for the long term that as things start opening up and the economy gets going again, we're, we're going to be all right. This is something that consumers are looking for in the future. That's the that's what I've been getting now. Maybe that's wishful thinking because <laughs> yeah. everybody wants to think that they'll have a, have a job. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. That, that's what I've been hearing from companies. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that does make sense is that I mean, one of the sort of ideas of sustainability that seems to have been really well validated by COVID is that we are way more interconnected than our, uh, than we previously thought. And that level of interconnection, um, is both a benefit and a risk because one, there's the huge economies of scale and all the things we talk about, but it's also then we get one little breakdown in the system and the ripple effects are tremendous. And so brands that have been more focused on vertical integration or more sustainable behavior or, you know, paying a fairer wage or fairer trade or building relationships directly with their suppliers and knowing who that coffee bean supplier is, knowing who that cotton supplier is. They're actually, they, whether they realize it or not, built in more resilience and redundancy driven primarily by like at, at first doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And now doing the right thing resulted in a, actually a, a little more re, like, I guess, resilience in, in their business model. Like mm-hmm. maybe this, maybe I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here and yeah. doing the same thing, which <laughs> is trying to justify these jobs. But uh, it, it seems there's there's something to be said said there that they're they're better positioned to like come out this other end maybe pivot a little more quickly have that kind of relationship with the customer that means a little more right i don't know yeah i i agree that this interconnection is so much more apparent to people now and also the idea that things can go wrong right we've things have just been such on such a steady even keel for a while and this shows you hey it's not not always going to be like this necessarily there's risks and so you hope that will translate into uh, more concern and action about climate, but it, it's such a stark contrast how seriously people have taken COVID versus how seriously they've taken climate change, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, people care a little bit about climate change, but it's in a huge emergency that people have not been acting on, whereas COVID really did mobilize everyone, right? And why is there that difference? I mean, I think it's a couple things. One is just that COVID directly impacts you, right? Like you could get it and die from it immediately. Whereas climate change more often is, I mean, there are some effects on you, but more often it's going to be in the future, right? That's the other Mm -hmm. big thing is down the road and other people, whereas COVID is me here right now, right? Mm. Um, But I hope that we can leverage the the learnings of COVID and people seeing that things are interconnected. And I think there's a chance. (laughs) Uh, Behaviors are changing now, right? We got to seize this opportunity. 
But what would smart, because I feel I'm always torn on this because I think there's like a smart form of leveraging and then there's like a dangerous form. Because if you look like you're just trying to like exploit the trauma of COVID in order to like sell your climate agenda, uh, you come across as kind of crass and you can turn people off. But if you're just saying, can we learn? Let's learn from this. Let's let's we need to deal with this and we need to meet people's needs and people need jobs and stability and all those kind of things. But also let's just realize that we had a sense of stability that was actually false mm-hmm. and we can't necessarily return to that. And can we please just like, can we please just learn from this in a constructive way as opposed to an accusatory way or a, mm-hmm. a, I don't know. I, I don't know what that looks like, but I've been really wrestling with this, this reconciliation of I've never had a better opportunity to communicate persuasively, effectively and urgently about climate because I'm just able to say this is a sneak peek of the future. On the other hand, uh, I've never felt more like sensitive and afraid of doing it in, in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that like makes me look like I'm exploiting a crisis for political ends. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely rub, rub people the wrong way. If you're telling them to do too much, it's, it's difficult. You got to come up with just the right amount of kind of threat and concern, right? Because mm. if if the it's kind of in a, I'm drawing, you can't see me drawing with my my hands here, but it's like an inverted U shape is what we say. So like, a, you know, if there's no no threat at all, people aren't afraid of climate, they're not going to take action. If they're mm. a little bit concerned, then they will take action. But if you ramp it up too far, of you're just going in their face with all these images and telling people what to do and being too scary, then it's actually a turnoff, right? That's uh, you get reactants. People aren't, are going to avoid thinking about it. They're not going to like you. They're going to disengage from the message. And so actually just ramping it up all the way is a bad idea. You got to find that sweet spot. And then how do you know what that sweet spot is? Uh, (laughs) But COVID, COVID did teach us something though, in that we gave consumers something to do. Yeah. Which was like, just stay home. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it wasn't very hard and uh, it allowed them to watch a lot of Netflix. And like, you know, I, I know there were some mental health effects of just feeling isolation. Is, you know, I'm not trying to diminish any of that. Mm-hmm. But like the great sacrifice of our of, of our world was basically stay home. Mm-hmm. And climate requires a way bigger sacrifice because it's not only like it's not stay home. It's like reimagine an economic order that does a good job of pricing externalities and mm-hmm. distributing outcomes more equitably across the planet, yeah. <laughs> which is just such a because like I've always been like, I think that we've been really effective in environmental or in sustainability movements when there's been a call to action that is relatively easy for people to embrace. But one of the tricky parts on climate is just how hard the call to action is, because it's like. There's some consumer behaviors you can change. You can travel differently. You can live differently. You can buy differently, everything like this. But it's such a massive intergenerational, interconnected global challenge that those, just those little things alone isn't quite enough, right? Yeah. Well, you need both the political change and the personal change, right? Yeah. And they are connected too, because if you're doing those little changes, they may seem like a drop in the bucket, but they, that coming back to social contagion that we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. You... Uh, if you're eating less meat, you're uh, traveling less, working from home more, your people see you've got, you know, patches on your clothes instead of uh, yeah. buying new clothes, you're reusing your clothes. That's a nice visible signal. It then that, you know, reaches other people around you, they start doing it. And then that builds the political will for mm. some of these big structural changes, right? So mm. uh, I think they are connected, right? People aren't going to, you You want, you need the voters on board and to have those voters on board, you need people doing this in their, in their lives. And I think maybe the way that we can 
take take advantage of the COVID situation for climate change is on this whole uh, co- consuming better in terms of re- reusing, being smart and efficient. That's you're, you're saying we need something that's easy for people to do. We'll just say, hey, buy used or reused rather than buy new. I mean, that's an old message. Mm-hmm. It's been around for a while, but maybe now is the right time for it, where it's something that fits with consumers' lives of what they're going to need economically, and it's good for the world too. Mm-hmm. I, I think it can be the right time for that. So that's a that's a perfect segue, I guess, into one of my final questions here, which is just around what do you think, if there's one thing the business community should to take away from this, right? If they, you know, because the, the, when, when there's some kind of treatment therapeutic vaccine, we are going to be so desperate for a sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. And uh, but what's that one thing like my grandma and her spendthriftiness and your and your grandpa and, and fixing nails like <laughs> if the business community is going to to hold on to one thing out of this what w- what would you hope that might be? Um, it's a it's a fragile world and society and we got to take care of it. That businesses need to be leaders too, right? It's not just coming from environmental activists, but that businesses too need to le- be leaders in in creating and protecting this world for all of us. It sounds like cliche, and, <laughs> but yeah. it's just, it's, it's so important, right? Yeah. Well, and it's a real upending of the business of business is business. Yeah. And, you know, older theories of shareholder profit maximization, which are valid in, in, in terms of like calculating financial models and governing you know, certain aspects of how a business should be run, but there's other, Mm -hmm. your point of like, if a business can demonstrate leadership, I think that's absolutely crucial because if if a business demonstrates leadership in in a time of a crisis like this, there's all these sort of intangible qualities of connection with employees, connections with customers, relationships Mm -hmm. with government, relationships with activists, with policymakers that, that leadership gives you opportunity to profit even more. Right. And so they're not incompatible. Long-term play. And so what's the one thing, uh, what's one thing that you've changed about? What's one habit you've developed in this COVID world uh, that you hope you hold on to? Uh, I, I'm actually exercising more right now that I'm not c- commuting as much. I can go for a run around the block or do yeah. a home workout class and trying to take care of myself also, sustain my own body for the long term. So. <laughs> Hope I can that's, keep that up. <laughs> well, that's a valuable thing because it helps you helps you keep yeah. up and sustain yourself for the long term too. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, th- thank you, David, for for taking the time to to work through this sort of the, the consumer's perspective here and how brands should connect with them. Really valuable stuff, and very mm-hmm. much appreciate your energy today. Oh yeah, thank you, Justin. It was fun. 